As I practice for the past 10 years, I found that one important part is to understand not only Kyoto, but the whole picture of Japanese culture. That makes this sensei so special. He got a flexible mind. He always said you Kyoto practitioner too serious. Uh, rigid to stubborn? Yep, it is actually. If you can get rid of your desire of releasing, you have a special point of time that you want to release very much. If you can get past it, even if you miss the target, you win as Sensei said. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Inside Look podcast. Today we're speaking with Lee Chak Fai from Hong Kong, China. Lee has been training for over 12 years, during which time he's achieved the rank of Sandan from the International Kudo Federation and was a founding member of the Hong Kong Kudo Association. In this engaging conversation, we talk about the early days of Kudo in Hong Kong, attending his first Kudo seminar in Japan under the shadow of the 2011 earthquake and tsunami, and the many lessons he's learned and continues to share from Kudo biographies and conversations. As with many of the stories we've already heard about starting a dojo and federation where previously there was none, the Hong Kong Kudo Association also came from humble beginnings and unique contextual challenges. What has remained consistent is the resilience and dedication of the early practitioners for these Budo arts and the patience they've shown to get their communities to where they are today. So please enjoy this sincere and wide-ranging conversation with Lee Chak Fai. My name is Lee Chakfei from Hong Kong, and I started Kudo back in 2008 in Japan, Tokyo Bunkoku. I actually started it in a public sports center, one by which is the local Kudo club. And at every Friday night, they open for public. You have you just have to pay 200 yen and you go in and then you can talk to the sensei and you can join the practice. Luckily, well, actually in 2008, I went to Japan to study Japanese. I used to practice Iaido in Hong Kong back in 2002, something, but I only did it for two years. After then, I have a chance to go to Japan and study. And of course, I would like to study some martial arts that are not available in Hong Kong. So I choose Kudo. Luckily, there is an American who studied for like over 40, 50 years there. He can do all the translate work for me. What That's was his name? I, what's his name? His full name is Won Finney. Finney-san, we, we call him. And it was great time because in Japanese, they mostly public dojo there, which means the dojo is run by the government. And those who teach there is called Kudo Kelsit, which means a Kudo classroom, roughly translated to English. And this is not a traditional dojo anymore. Those teachers who practice there or teaching there is just assigned by the local club. They have a classroom for the public. For the first two or three months, I was only allowed to attend the five-day night practice, which is basically every beginners queue up at the Makira. And according to your level, you do the empty hand, and then you do the cutter, and then you have to do subiki. After all of that, you can do the Makira. 
After three or four months, finally you can stand at the motto and allowed to attend the other nice cars. Let's go back to when you were in Hong Kong. You said you did some Iaido and then you wanted to do a different martial art. Why were you interested in doing a Japanese martial art in the first place? Oh, that has to go back to my childhood. I start from Chinese martial art, which taught by my father. He taught me the basic, and after that, I have a chance to meet a Chinese Kung Fu master. After all, it's Hong Kong, right? And how did I know him? Actually, I'm looking for some, how to say in English, caliber. Jack Yi, actually, I can I did the treatment and I recovered very well. And he looked at me and said, you're such skinny kid. Let me teach you some martial art to make you stronger. And that's how I actually started the Chinese Kung Fu. It was something like 18, 19 years old. And besides the Chinese martial arts, also did the idol, which you know the cup very well, Locks Cup. That is 2000, something like that. I did two years. Uh, you know, when you are getting to a certain level, you have to buy a proper sword, Japanese sword for that. And by the time it was just too expensive to afford. So I went to the dojo less and less, and the master who taught me Chinese Kung Fu got some long-term disease. So he didn't go to the dojo as well. That's why I didn't go there anymore. But I'm still interested in the idol by the time. After then, four or five years later, I decided to go to Japan to study Japanese, which is a, well, a little gym for my generation. You know, grow up in the 80s and 90s, the Japanese culture is a big thing for us. That's why I went there to study Japanese and started Kyudo. At the very first point, I went to uh, Hatai Sensei's dojo as well. But it, it's just too far away from Tokyo. It was Tokyo, but you take quite a long time to there. If you have visited Hatai Sensei before, you know, know from Shinjuku. Hatai Sensei's dojo actually is the head of all dojo in Hong Kong. You know Hang Ai Wei, you know, originally from there, everybody. There's different federations for Eidol. So I'm, I do the Eidol in the Kendo Federation. Ah, I see. So it's a different. So it's, oh, ah, that's why. I thought you know Lok. Uh, I thought you do Batodo as well. Uh, it's a different type of EI. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I just here. Anyway, that's how I started my Japanese martial arts January. Yeah. Okay. So how long were you studying in Japan? Oh, only for one year. Okay. So you had to come uh, back to Hong Kong after that year. And then how did yeah. you continue Kudo? That's the funny part. That's the funny part because it was so different from practitioner, I would say. In 2009, I came back to Hong Kong and asked the Idol Cup in Hong Kong. Can I borrow their dojo to continue my own training? Of course, Kudo training. And I used the tatami to make the very first makiwa. And I only practiced makiwa for like one or two years. 
Then my teacher, my sensei in Tokyo, contacted me and told me, Kokusai Kyudo Lame with the International Kyudo Federation are going to start a seminar for the Asia and Oceania. What was the English? Oceania. Basically, the seminar for Asia. By the time, almost no, only a few cups in the Asia area. So they started the seminar and they want to promote it in Asia. I was lucky to be invited to the seminar, but it was 2011, which is known as the, the big earthquake in, in Kanto. So I have a chance to visit a Shinjuku without any light. The, the earthquake happens in March and I visit there in April. So it's just one month late after the earthquake. And everybody was talking about the nuclear and, and stuff like that. Because they are saving energy, I can visit a, a Tokyo with those, those how to say, Jiupai. Yeah. And then the seminar took place in Nagoya, which we attended after as well. Basically, I attend every year until 2017. It, it all took place in Nagoya. The very first time, they are not calling that the seminar is seminar. They just call it a Koryukai, which is a, a, because they got only 20 attendants. And almost all the people were afraid of the nuclear power, so they didn't attend the seminar. After that, in 2012, they pretty much got 50 or 60 attendants, which mostly from Taiwan and only me from Hong Kong, and some from Australia and so on and so on. In, in 2011, yep. who were these brave people to go through the nuclear, <laughs> not care about the <laughs> nuclear radiation? About five or six from Taiwan and five or six from New Zealand and a few from local Japan and a few, I believe, no Malaysian yet. Yeah, mostly Taiwan and New Zealand. Hmm. Do you remember any specific people or... What did you guys do? I'm sure the talk about the tsunami and ah. was quite a bit. Do you remember anything about that time when you guys were together, that small group? Yeah, of course, the president of New Zealand Kudo Association, Chris, was there. And the former president of Taiwan was the lady called Yong Man Cheng. The others, well, maybe they didn't continue the Kudo practice, so I didn't meet them for a while. So the only two persons I, I can remember is these two. Oh, of course, Sato, Sato-san, who looked after New Zealand. Okay. I believe those who practiced that long has most uh, the committee of the local Kyoto Cup, like Chris, uh, yeah. So now it's 2012. You said mm -hmm. there are a lot more people, but you were still the only one from Hong Kong? Yep. It's because we started well, as I said before, I practiced alone back in the time. And then few of the Yaido Cups members got some interest in Kudo. So I started to practice together with them. I won't say I taught. I say I just share my experience in Japan. So we started the little cup under the, the Yaido Cup by the time. 
and then we started it back right after my seminar. So it should be May 2011. By the time it was like Locke, Locke was the first member of the club. And then we could feel practitioner, the Linda day. After then, it start to attend the next year's seminar as we just start the club. So in 2012, that makes me the only guy from Hong Kong. So you're saying there's, there's that, only three or four of you, and yep, and the other members were didn't have enough experience yet to do it yet. They were just doing yep. Komuyumi yep. or Tsubiki. Yeah. After that, I came back from the seminar in 2012. We got two experienced members from England, which is Ailey and Chun. They learned their kudo in London. There was a lot of Hong Kong people study in England and maybe work over there. They practiced in London for already seven or eight years. They both got two dance by the time. And they came back to Hong Kong after their study or work. And then they joined the club. We started the club for just a few months for maybe one year. Okay, so uh, you guys were yeah. doing your club in Hong Kong. And then when Ali and Jun came back, they mm-hmm. did the search to, to see if anyone else was practicing and that's how they found you? Or... Yep, they searched on the internet. By the time we were, we were trying to some more members to join Kudo with us. So they found us and we start a, a proper uh, Kudo club. As I said before, it's under the, the, the Yaido Cup. It's just a Kudo Soso, something like that. Okay. Yep. When they came back, you were already a full club? You had already separated and became a... Or they uh, helped make it so... They, they joined us and then Locke thought that was a chance to separate from the Yaido Cup because we have enough people, enough experienced people to, to teach. So we decided to separate and start the Hong Kong Kyoto Association. What do you get from creating this group? Like you get separate funding, you can book times. You can... Oh, we used to practice in a rooftop of a secondary school. And it was interesting because the very top four of that school is rented by Hong Kong Jockey Club, which is doing some young activities, should I say. Hong Kong Jockey Club Local Charity. A local charity for youth uh, youth organization. Yep. yep. We went there and can use the top for free because as return we have to hold a class for them, a kudo class for them. After two or three years of rooftop practice, we rent our dojo, which we are still using right now. So that used organization, they asked you to teach some of their members? No, uh, not, not, not their members, but they recruit new members. Okay. Yeah. So this youth organization run by the Jockey Club helped gave you the space to use and helped you find people to come yep. practice? Oh, wow. Yep, but they have some target to meet anyway. So we are just good married. Yeah. 
That's a <laughs> yeah. That's why we can because we are recruiting people and getting some little money from the jockey club. So we got some saving to start our own dojo. Yeah, so we rent our dojo. We're using right now in two thousand fourteen. Hmm. So I wanna um, I want to get into the process of getting your dojo, but I also want to go back to, in the beginning when you were just an organization, you weren't the teacher. You just wanted to practice with people. How has the club structure changed over time, over the years? Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, that's interesting because at the very first time, at、uh, the very first place, we just want a place to practice kudo. It was much more struggling than you can imagine in Hong Kong to look for a place for archery because we can use the archery range as we are not doing the Western style archery. We are not in their club, not in their association. So the only way to do it is to find a private, no private area. That sounds strange. Private place to practice kudo, but you know they got the highest rate of land here in Hong Kong, so it's almost impossible to do that without certain amount of money. We have tried to contact the local university, but we don't have a long history for running a club. First of all. And after that, we have a very new association or, or organization, so we are not able to find any places to practice. So that's why I can only afford a a marquee at the very first place. And afterward, well, we got some lucky contact thanks to Locke. He knows a guy that works in the Hong Kong Jockey Club, which is the secondary school guy. So we can start to practice some proper well kudo. One of the reasons why I wanted to interview you was because you were also starting to share more thoughts online through Google Meet. I also knew before that you had done a lot of reading of Japanese texts and history on kudo. So maybe you can first talk about besides the physical practice of kudo, what else have you explored in that realm, and what kind of research, <laughs> what kind of interest did you have in, in these other areas?、Uh-huh. That's the interesting part of it. As I practice for the past ten years, I found that one important part is to understand not only kudo but the whole picture of Japanese culture. Luckily, I'm able to manage to read those Japanese texts because we Hong Kongers can read the kanji very well. And I didn't read those books until I know my kakeshi who made my kake. We met him in Nagoya in 2013. I met him and asked him to make my kudo gloves. Almost the same age. He is only three or four above me, so we are quite in the same ages. We talk a lot about kudo, and I practice in in his dojo in his home. So able to assess the guy from a traditional kudo family, and his father is Hansi, his grandfather is Hansi. It's just inter. <laughs>、oh, wow. It was just interesting. So I'm able to learn beside the books, and able to speak Japanese also make me. So I say assess to the way they thought, they think. 
it makes me feel strange while looking at some other countries, Kudoka, how they fall, how they misunderstanding, but they, they have their own tradition and it's just different from the Japanese. In the Mihasu episode, you guys talked about that as well. And Mihasu was one of the members of the group in, in Nagoya. Yeah. So after then, I got more and more of those knowledge about Kyudo in Japan. So I started to attend more seminars by the time I'm able to talk to some other Hans, including a very inspiring sensei who is um, his fault and is known as a pioneer in modern Kyudo. Can you tell me more about that? Who, who yeah, was of course. What was his... Okazaki. Okazaki Hiroshi Sensei is a Hachidan Hanshi, and he got the Tenohai, which is the top of the Japanese competition sky. You know, Tenohai, how to say that in Tenohai is the Tinwong Bui. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the only Japanese was allowed to join this competition and they not only counting the hits, but also giving points to their cartons and all this stuff. So winning that means that guy is the best in Japan and he won like eight times. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, I, I can't remember the exact, let me see, let me talk about this book. Okay. Uh, I'm well, not... So I'll just quickly explain to people listening that are from the other arts. So the Emperor's Cup is kind of like the All Japan Iaido Championship, All Japan Jodo Kendo Championship, where the best of the best show up. And I'm not clear on this one, but is it like the top players from each prefecture will then go, or is it invite only? Oh, it yeah, it's the top Kudoka in their prefecture. Yeah, so they're selected they... from prefecture, and unlike a lot not of... Not selected. They, oh, they, they, they have to win their Papitra's competition hmm. before they can go to the Ten High. Okay. And unlike a lot of normal Kido competitions where it's just about hitting, the Emperor's Cup is also about your form. You not only have to have the best hit rate, but also have the best form. Yep. Okay. I'm making a mistake. He won five times in the 80s uh, and 90s. He also is, I said that he is uh, inspiring because the way he do Kudo is not the traditional way. Of course, at his age, he is 80 uh, this year, 80 or 81. At his age, he was able to meet a lot of great sensei, great old sensei. Even study from a sensei which whose sensei was Awakenjo from the Zen and Archery. Oh, wow. The book Zen Archery. Yeah. And that's how his experience is that the way he thinks is so, so not Japanese. He's not following the old rules. And he tried to ask almost about everything. He's just wise about the technology. Everyone is following the sensei thought. You have to do it like this. You have to do it like that. You have to do it. In the old days, it, as he explained, the, the old Kyujutsu or, or Kyudo, they moved their fingers to do the Hare, to do the release. He started to ask why. That's the inspiring way. Always ask 
why. But well, it's a little bit, how to say, in the seminar, we are quite often to see fraudulent ask why. But the annoying thing is if you're not thinking before you ask, that's annoying. If you try it yourself and try to ask why and try to find the answer yourself, you lead you to a different way. Do is a way in Japanese, right? And that way he experienced that was written in this book. The book was you, so. Because this we only have audio here, so can you describe uh, what is the book? What's the name of the book and who wrote it? What's it about? Okazaki Hiroshi Hansi wrote this book and it's called Muso Long. Muso means no no equal competition. Yeah. Yeah, no. The meaning of the Muso is not competing with others, also not competing with the bow itself. You're not going to fight the bow, you are going to be lost kudo. Mm. Oh, it can also be no conflict. Yeah, yeah. His philosophy of the Muso, he's also a, a kake maker. He also named his kake Muso, Muso kake. Not fighting others, not uh, fighting the bow, not fighting yourself. I think the listener is experienced in Japanese martial art. Not fighting yourself means that if you're using wrong power, you actually, you slow yourself down, right? When you swing a sword, if you use the extra power, you, you're just stopping yourself, something like that. And his philosophy actually starts here, where the Musou came from. And you start from here as you go, you can say you're not fighting your golf, you're not fighting the foe of your, of your forces, of your power. So it's not in order to do that, you're not focused on your technique anymore. He said that when someone wants him to write something or, or get a, a sign, he always write Mugi. That means no technique. But that's strange because in the very first pay, we, we, we learned how to do the Torikake, we learned how to do the Tenochi, but he wrote no technique. If you're not experienced in, in Budo, that is quite hard to understand, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's the interesting thing in this kind of sensei sport. But I find that for those who can only speak Chinese, Cantonese, or English, especially for those who only practice for two or three years, it's quite difficult for them to understand this kind of concept. So that's why I'm doing some Google Meets to talk about this kind of books and this kind of concept and how those sensors reach their level they are right now. They got some very interesting stories in their young time. So if I were to ask you to flip to the most interesting part for you in that book, like if you were just to say, hey, I have this book. This part is really interesting. I want to read it to you. What uh-huh. would you- uh, I would say, well, not from this book, but from the same Okazaki Sensei. In 2019, in the seminar, he said, don't try to correct your, how to say, your mistake correctly. Don't try to correct yourself correctly. Isn't that interesting? 
what he means is if you got a yurumi, which in the kai, you try to release your finger, right? You try to hanare, you try to. Most of the people under the high-speed camera, they relax just like this and then release, okay? Mm-hmm. And if you want to get rid of this, what should you do? You try to do it correctly, right? Most of the people will try to do it correctly. But he said, no, don't try to do it correctly. It just won't fix any problem. You have to do the opposite. If you're relaxing, try to don't think that much, just do a, a backhand bang. No matter that, it is bad thing, right? You use the bad thing to correct your bad thing, just mm-hmm. like a, a drug. It, drugs, drugs are drugs. You, if it is completely without poison, you can take as much as you want. But you have a certain amount of drugs to heal yourself, right? So what he said is you do the two extreme things and you can try to find the, the middle. You can try to find the correct way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes this teacher, this sensei, so special. He got a flexible mind. He always said that you all kill the practitioner too serious. Rigid to uh, stubborn? Yep, yep. So, well, it is actually. Most of the Kyoto practitioners, especially the beginner, they too bozhou, following the sensei's thought. They just can't think out of the box. And of course, we are not talking not asking anybody to, to do anything they want, but they have to start uh, think why that they have to, how to say, not think out of the box and think about the reasons. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, I, c- I can totally see that. It's just like when you're teaching a kid to look both ways before they cross the street, the kid might think, mm-hmm. not just looking, but the purpose is to see if there's anything dangerous. So you see, oh, there's no cars, I'm just going to go. Maybe there's a bike or maybe there's like a tree falling down or something. There's no mind <laughs> why they're doing their actions. Yep. In, in order to do that, they have to have some resources. They have to learn something before they can think, right? So trying to translate some kudo books or translating those stuff to tired, making me tired. So I'm doing Google Meet instead of that. Could you talk about, what did you talk about in your last Google Meet, just for the audience to get a, a sense of what you talk about? Uh-huh. I talked about those videos from the seminar in Taiwan last year, yeah. But before that, the most I want to talk most was the modern Kudo. It was my very first Google Meet modern Kudo, which is all Nippon Kudo Federation. Kudo. Before that, there was a concept of Kudo or not, because actually we have Hakkiryu, which is Kyujutsu, and Kudo is just started or invented 100 years ago. It's not a very long time. And the modern Kudo was basically set up in the 50s after World War II. 
this concept is always misunderstood by the overseas. They always make the, up the traditional culture and culture or the modern culture. Especially after World War Two, some sensei in America or Europe started to teach how to say old ways of culture. So that is quite different. But it's absolutely fine to for for anyone to do what kind of culture they want, but they have to understand what they are doing. I say you can't say that you are doing A and thought you are doing B. What it, what do you find is like the biggest issue with having this misconception that modern kudo is the same as what they traditionally did? Uh huh. What is that? Because impact? because the technique should be followed the objection of the kudo. Modern kudo is looking for shinzen b as the kyohon written, but in the old days you you were standing in the battlefield trying to kill others. But if you try to use battlefield techniques to achieve sinzenbi, that's not that's just not possible because the technique decided to achieve that goal, right? So in the Kyudo Dokuhong and other books written in the seventies, they got a fine definition of that. That sensei just written it is absolutely different technique for those different purposes.、Mm. Okay, so the purpose of、yeah. these Google Meets that you've been doing has to help just enlighten people of common misconceptions that they might have in the practice when they don't have exposure to these books, or to bring up new concepts that they might not have heard about that you were able to find when you're reading or when you're talking to to some people when you're in Japan. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of resources in Japanese. There are a lot of it, but as I know, there are quite a few books translated to English from, let's say, the Oluma Sensei's book. That is some very well written book as well, but it was written in the sixties. It's just kind of old. You can understand Kudo by the time, but but just not now. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering, going back to when you said you stayed, you practiced at your kake maker's home,、mm-hmm. and his father was a hanshi, his grandfather was a hanshi. Are there any stories from your discussions with him, conversations with him that you can share that a normal practitioner won't hear when they go to a seminar? Or like, uh-huh. Yeah, what is it like being、uh, family of kudo practitioners at such a high level? Like, what kind of stories do they have? When he was a a longjin, that means he failed in school and started period of no jobs. He just practiced every day in the dojo. He was so much shorter than me, and I would say quite a skinny guy, but with maybe two hundreds of suit per days, he was able to use a twenty kilos yumi, and in a correct way of drawing the bow. It was just incredible because if I draw a bow in a wrong way, even me, I can draw a seventeen, eighteen kilograms. If I draw it in a correct way, which in that dojo, which is very basic thing, I could only draw a thirteen kilograms bow. It's such a big differences because the difference of dip to down in the techniques, but. Anyway, simply say that 
with some senses and requirement is your freedom of your shoulders in Kai. He always demonstrated that when he is in full Kai, his shoulder can move just freely. It means he's not pushing the bow and heartening the muscle. It involved the concept of ikil, which roughly translates to lively. It's not that. You should be able to lively in Kai. For those who practice Kyudo for years, you may know what that means, but for others, it's hard to explain. And so it's hard, yeah. yeah, it is hard uh, to explain to those that don't do it. I just want to quickly also explain that when you said a 20 kilo Yumi, in the past, that probably was a regular weight. Just like, let's say, in Yiaido, usually one kilogram is kind of the limit where we say, okay, if you're a pretty big guy, if you're strong, you can swing on Yaito Shinken, that's one kilograms or more. And for those that want to see macho, they would use something heavier than that. So the same thing, when someone <laughs> starts Kudo, in order to feel macho, they want to pull a much heavier bow. They'd use the pull weight by kilograms. So yeah, yeah. So typically, I guess in these days when you don't practice very often, 13 to 15 for the average man, so when you get to 20 kilograms, that's already quite macho in that sense, but you can't do it through muscle alone. You have to do it through technique. But what you're saying, yeah. there's this guy that, that was practicing who was yeah. skinny. Was oh. able to draw that kind of bow. Because in that dojo that they're talking, you should use a bow that fits your physical situation, physical state. And they don't recommend really strong bow because it's not the old days. In the old days, the technique was different. So they start at a very strong bow by the time. But in modern kudo, the requirement are different. And for beginners, it's almost impossible for beginners to use such a strong bow in like the old time. The other thing is to ask an interesting point I got an interesting story which I can share. Usami Sensei, when he was young, he went to a local market and found a old yajiri, the tip of the arrows, the old one which used in the battlefield. You know, in Nagoya, there are quite a lot of old battlefields, so there's, you can get that kind of arrow tip for fairly cheap price, I guess. It was like 2000 or something. And he bought it and bring it back home and sharpened it and tried to put it on his own arrows. He put a pan, fine pan, at the 28 meters and tried to shoot it. What happened is that only he can able to shoot through it. Other guys using the same arrows, just pan, it just reflects somewhere. It means that the forces of the arrow is not straight enough. If you got a slightly different incoming angle, so it would just slip away and only senses can, can shoot through it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. That was the old story. But we got some story that's not quite proper to share to all the listeners. But it was normal in the old time, but for, for now, it's just not proper anymore, I would say. In the grandfather times, they used to put a box of secret in this pocket. 
Because at home, they're not changing to the doggy all the time. They sometimes practice like this and put a box of cigarettes in here and just shoot. If you're a bad shooter, it will hit your box of cigarettes here. If you're good enough, it will be fine. Yeah, uh, a part of history, I would say. But of course, they don't do it anymore. I can't even smoke at the door of the dojo. You have to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Okay. So just to wrap this up, I want to ask you a couple of quick questions that you can answer in as short or as long as you want. One popular question I have with Kido people is, which is your favorite stage in the Hasatsu, the eight stages of shooting? Which one's your favorite and why? It's going to be Kai because this was the most struggling phase of the Kido. It determined you win or lost to your, your, your own desire, your thought. If you can get rid of your desire of releasing, or how to say, you have a certain time that you have a special point of time that you want to release very much. If you can get past it, that your winning point, even if you miss the target, you win as Sensei said. Okay. Do you have a quote or a proverb that you live by or you practice by? Mm-hmm. Do not release even if you die. Mm. Yeah, do not release. Don't release. What, so what is that from? Hold it. Hold it in the time. Uh, it's Zen and archery. Our Kenzo always told the student not to release. Wait for it. So let it just happen by itself. Yup. But let it happen requires correct techniques. That is the strange point. If you hold it really tight, it just won't happen. Hmm. Okay. If you have a chance to meet and have a conversation with one sensei or practitioner now or in history that's already passed away, who would that be? Yeah, it got to be our Kenzo. Another one will be Kamogawa Sensei, who passed last year. Who, who is Kamogawa Kamogawa Sensei was a former president of All Nippon Kyoto Federation. And he was a tendon while he was alive. He was just, he passed away at 101 ages. Just because he got a so long life, it started Kyoto in the very old stage that had so many questions for him about the Showa period, how it was like of the Kyoto. Mm-hmm. Actually, he did read quite a lot describing those days in, in the monthly magazine Kyoto. He talked that when he firstly joined Dojo, and I forgot which sensei, but at the first year, he didn't even able to touch the bow, just doing the cleaning up the, the very traditional way. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, yeah, just the time, you know, just history, yeah. Okay, so that, I think that's good for this first conversation. Hopefully we can have some more in the future. Is there anything in closing that you might want to say to people either in the Kyoto world outside of Hong Kong and other countries or just non-Kyoto practitioners, anything you might want to close this interview with? Uh-huh. If you uh, first going, don't know what to do, don't know your direction, try to learn Japanese. 
yeah, that will make differences. You know, you got some much more understanding in the, in the Buddha. Uh, it's because it's just so hard to understand the concept in, in other language, I would say. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you again soon. Uh, no problem. Have a good night. Have a good night. Bye. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is available on most common podcasting platforms and on YouTube. Remember to subscribe to not miss out on new interviews as they are posted. We're always looking for feedback to improve, so please write us a review or drop us a line at podcast at tokushikai.ca or on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada. Until next time, thanks for listening.